Well, how's everybody doing? Thanks so much for being here. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Hello as well to those of you watching in Issaquah, Duval, and online. I hope you had a great Christmas and uh, really the opportunity to hang out with family and friends and, and relax. I know many of you were with us just a few days ago at one of our Christmas Eve services. It was incredible. We had over 5,000 people across eight services uh, at our three different campuses. Uh, I also wanted to say a huge thank you to the hundreds of volunteers that made those services possible. Uh, it was really incredible. Uh, well, let's have a little bit of interaction and confession as we kick off the service. It'll be good for your soul, I promise. Uh, how many of you were out shopping on Christmas Eve or wrapping presents up late that night? Okay, a few of us. Uh, how many of you forgot batteries for at least one toy or electronic this year? Okay. Uh, how many of you are still tracking uh, the shipping on a package that was supposed to arrive a week ago but still not there yet? Yeah, a few angry people in the crowd. And then how many of you, you, you started uh, but left unfinished a toy or project or something at the house and you, you, you tried and just kind of lost steam halfway through and it's still sitting there left for you to do? Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, in just a few days, 2015 is going to come to an end. We're going to cross the finish line and head into 2016. And my guess is that many of you would be like me. And if you look back, you'd say that there's a little bit of unfinished business uh, left in 2015. That there were some, uh, some things that we would have hoped to have accomplished uh, by now. There were some goals that we had set uh, that we would hope to have finished. There were some relationships that we would have hoped to have started or maybe concluded. Uh, there's a list of things that we have not yet crossed the finish line um, yet. And what I want to talk about this weekend is the power of the finish line. What I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed the same thing, is that there's some people in life that are better at regularly crossing finish lines uh, than others. That uh, regardless of the, the situation or circumstance, that whether it's a goal or a project or, or uh, an endeavor, that uh, the, the situation is different, but the results are the same. That there's a way that we can position ourselves that affects whether or not we finish. Have you noticed that starting can be a lot easier than finishing? There's excitement when you start things. There's, there's energy. Some of us, we love new. We're addicted to new. We're early adapters. We get excited about new things. We get energized, when, whether it's a, a new hobby or, or a new activity or a new friendship or a new idea or a new business or a new job or a new relationship, a new workout plan, whatever it is. I'm the king of the starting line. But then finishing when it comes to actually following through, we can lose a little bit of steam along the way. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Sometimes there can be distractions or, or other things that come up. Sometimes there can be wounds or hurts along the way, little scratches that build up over time. For some of us, we're afraid to ship an idea or a project because once it's out there, there's gonna be criticism and review and feedback. Sometimes we just want to give up. Have you had one of those days where at the end you just feel like, okay, everything's against me and I just need to go to bed and start over because this is just not working for whatever reason. Uh, a few months ago, uh, my wife Haley and I took our son Henley, who is two and a half years old, to Great Wolf Lodge. 
We had never been before, but Henley loves the water, loves to swim, and so we thought it'd be a lot of fun. And, and we were there, and we were, we were playing around. He's too little to go on any of the slides, but we were at the kiddie pool, and he liked to sit at the edge of the wave pool and let the waves crash over him. And we had been there for a few hours when Haley noticed me eyeing some of the big tube slides across the way. And she said, hey, if you want, I'll watch Henley. You can go and, and ride one of the tubes and, and, then, and then come back and meet us. So I walk over and I climb this seven-story uh, staircase and I wait in line for forever and finally uh, it's my turn and I get up to the top and I go to get on and there's this 17-year-old uh, attendant and he says, you can't ride this ride alone. I said, no, I'm pretty sure I can. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is, this is a two-person limit up to four people, but you, there's no single riders. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to tip over in the tube. You can't ride by yourself. And so I'm, I'm like, I don't want to walk all the way down. That's embarrassing. And I'm here and I want to ride the ride. So I say, okay, I'll just wait for, for someone. And so I step off to the side and I'm like, I'll just wait for people that don't have a full group and I'll ride with them. And, and I wait and I look. The problem is all that's in line is a bunch of little kids. And so now I'm the creepy guy waiting for kids to come through the line that don't have an adult with them so that I can ride with them. Finally, a couple uh, kids come through and they're like, hey, mister, you can ride with us. And so I'm like, sure. And so we, we go down the tube and, and, and it was awesome. And, and I get to the bottom and I, I say thanks and their parents are like eyeing me. And, and so I go off and I find Haley and she's in the middle of the, this, this big uh, kiddie pool. You know, when they're, they're like the two feet deep uh, water. And so I'm telling her about this encounter and I reach down to pick up Henley and I hear a tear. And then I feel a breeze. And I realized that the back of my shorts are completely ripped open. And Haley, you know, being the loving, supportive wife, she just falls into the water laughing. And, and I don't know what to do. And so I just sit down. And Haley's like, well, I guess I'll go get you a towel. So she picks up Henley and goes off to try to find me a towel. The problem is now the creepy guy who was waiting to ride with children is now sitting in the middle of the kiddie pool without a kid around him. So I'm getting awkward, angry stares from moms and kids as they pass by. And, and finally, Haley comes back with a towel, and I wrap it around my way. I'm just, I'm going back to the room. I give up. I'll see you later, right? In that moment, I had enough embarrassment uh, for the day. How many of you, you, uh, you begin this year or maybe even this month with some goals, I'm going to reach out beyond my current sphere of influence and I'm going to make some new friends or I'm going to invest in a few key relationships to expand my network. Maybe for you it was a financial goal of, of earning or investing or saving or spending. Maybe for you it was more of a spiritual uh, or habit goal. I'm going to start some things or stop some things or, or change some things or reevaluate. Whether personal or spiritual or professional, my guess is that for many of us, we get to this point where the, the adrenaline rush of starting begins to fade and our energy begins to wane. And in the finishing line, while at one point seemed inevitable, now we're not sure so much. And what I've been thinking about lately is how do I become better at the finish line? There's a Christmas story that I want to look at found in, in the book of Matthew that's unique because it happens after the fact. If you want to pull out your notes, you can follow along. It starts in Matthew chapter 2. Here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
Where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So what do we see in the Magi's story? First, we see this. They followed the signs. They were anticipating Jesus coming by following the signs. Magi, often referred to in the Christmas story as the wise men or the three kings, they were people who study the scripture and the signs. The Bible doesn't provide a lot of information about them, but scholars believe that while many of us in our nativity scenes have three of them there, they would suggest that it's more likely that there was between 12 and 100 of them actually following the star. They were following the signs and searching for what it could lead them to. A few months back, I was on a plane ride to Atlanta uh, for a conference with some of our staff and, and ministry leaders. And we were spread out all over the plane. I was sitting on an aisle seat, and, and Pastor Ben was in an aisle seat uh, next to me. And we were probably about an hour into the flight, and Ben was, was watching some show on his laptop. I think he was catching up on episodes of the Kardashians or something like that. And uh, uh, there was this man sitting next to me, and, and he was probably about 40, uh, 40 or so, average-looking looking guy, and he had a tablet out, and he was reading something. And so, of course, I read over his shoulder, and I'm trying to figure out what we're reading. And I see that it's an instruction manual for a conference or a camp or a retreat that he must be going to, and he must be a leader because it's walking him through different exercises for this. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's a Christian thing. Maybe it's like a camp, and, and, and this is cool. And so we start reading, and, and it says, uh, when all the men arrive, so it must be like a men's retreat or, or something like that, it says, have them get around in a circle and pass out drums and find men who are good with rhythm and have them start making drums. I'm like, oh, this kind of sounds like a church camp. And then it says, have all of the men begin to make animal sounds with whatever animal they most relate to. Thinking, okay, maybe it's a Pentecostal camp or something. And then, and then he turns the page, and, and then it starts to get a little weird. It says, when it gets dark, lead all of the men out into the woods and have them close their eyes and lead them in a trance by whispering this monologue. And it, it goes and talks about there's this little boy in the woods, and it started to get weird. And then he flips the page a few more times, and, and all I read is, all of the men may not feel comfortable taking off all of their clothes. Now, at this point, I put my headphones on and make sure our legs don't touch for the rest of the flight. Now, now you asked me, why do I tell you this story? Partly because I feel emotionally scarred, and I just needed to confess it to someone else. But, but partly because here's what I've discovered in life. People are into weird things. And also, people are searching for truth, for hope, for meaning, for something bigger than themselves. You see, these wise men were following the signs, hoping to find something at the other end. And I wonder if perhaps this weekend you would find yourself searching for something. That maybe there are some signs in your life that God's been speaking to you through some other people or through some circumstances that maybe the Holy Spirit's been leading or prompting in your life. And, and maybe without even realizing it, God's been working behind the scenes 
in your life. I read an article a while back that said, often when we think of missionaries or evangelism, we think in terms of a traveling salesman, somebody going to sell a product that they don't have and trying to get them to buy it in a sense. But, but rather evangelism would be more accurately described as a tour guide, someone pointing out how God is already there and the signs around us all the time. These men, they, they saw this star in the sky and they began to follow it. And so they came to Jerusalem because they thought Jesus might be there. And so they stopped and, and they asked for directions. Now scholars believe that this is the first time in recorded history that men ever stopped and asked for directions, which is important. So they talked to Herod and then they continue their search. And what we see is that it was a journey to find Jesus, but they finished strong. It's believed that they could have traveled more than 800 miles to complete their trip. I know in the nativity scenes, everybody's there at the same time. And, and there's this beautiful uh, picture of, and there, there's this barn and there's angels and there's sheep and there's donkeys and there's, there's shepherds and there's wise men and there's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and Mary's just given birth and there's all these strangers in a barn, which I'm sure all the moms would say is the best afterbirth experience ever. But that's not really how it happened. You see, they say that it was more likely that by the time these men arrived on the scene, that Jesus was probably almost two years old. And what's interesting to me is that they didn't give up along the way. It would have been easy to. Good effort, but long journey, let's go home. But instead, they crossed the finish line and finished strong. They arrived, they worshiped Jesus, they presented these gifts. I'm always impressed with people who are able to regularly cross finish lines in their life. The Apostle Paul writes two direct letters to his protege, Timothy, that we have included in the Bible. And in them, there's sort of this passing of the torch, and Paul encourages Timothy and instructs him on life and faith and leadership. And he writes this in 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is finishing as Timothy is getting started. And there's this passing of the torch where, where Paul several times uses this analogy of a race to talk about faith and life. And Paul's telling Timothy not only how to begin well, but how to finish strong. And I thought that it might be good as we head into this new year to maybe stop and talk before we go into new things and, and new projects and new goals that perhaps there may be some things in your life that are currently unfinished, where you'd say, you know, there's, there's a relationship and I'm just trying to figure out how to navigate it in a healthy way. Or there's this dream or this passion or vision that I feel like, I felt like God gave me and I was excited about it and I began to dream and plan and, and, and then I lost steam and I'm trying to figure out how do, I, how do I pick it back up? There's some mistakes that I made and I just don't know, is it too much? Do I need to give up? Do I have to start over or can I keep going? Or maybe for you, there's just simply some unfinished business that God would want to bring to a close this year. Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've finished strong. Not in all things, but in things that matter. In my faith, with my family, in my finances, with my friends, I've finished well. 
Now, I don't have time to go through the whole letter, but earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul gives Timothy some practical and spiritual advice that I want to look at. And so for the rest of our time today, I just want to walk through 2 Timothy chapter 1 and, and pull out some of what Paul teaches Timothy about starting well and finishing strong. Here's what I've noticed about people who regularly cross finish lines. First of all, they celebrate wins along the way. Some of you are, are really good at celebrating yourself. And, and you've got issues, and we don't have time to get into all of that. But, but many of us that are here uh, this weekend, uh, for, celebrating can be hard for us. Because we think, if I celebrate myself too much, I'm going to get complacent, and I'm going to look conceited, and, and it's going to be weird. And if I celebrate other people too much, they're maybe not going to make the changes that they need to make to keep going. But what I have to continually remind myself of is that often celebration creates the motivation for us to keep going. It's why in a long race, they have checkpoints along the way, and there's people that are cheering you on, not just at the finish line, but along the way as well. All of us, whether introverted or extroverted, we feel good when we're celebrated in a way that's meaningful to us. And sometimes you have to be specific. This is a big deal. I want to be celebrated. You need to throw me a party. You'd say, is that a little bit conceited? Maybe. But listen, I don't want to, to uh, hold it against other people when I don't get celebrated because they don't know that I wanted to. I don't want to pout about the part of my mind that people didn't read. Sometimes, uh, for, for some of you, you've been frustrated because you made a step that people saw but they didn't celebrate because they didn't know how much it cost you to get there. I met with uh, a young couple uh, a few weeks back and, and they're, they're married and they've been only coming to Timberlake for, for a few months now. And uh, we're talking about their marriage and, and they were telling me their story and there's been some, some pretty big hurts and wounds along the way. And they're trying to, to, to navigate through that and saying, really, is there a path forward in this? Because we don't really see it and we're not sure how. And, and one of the things that I said to him, I said, here's what I want you to do this week. Go home, and every night before you go to sleep, I want you to hold hands, look each other in the eye, and then say something encouraging about the other person, something you love, something you appreciate, something you notice, something you like, and then pray together. There's something powerful when we celebrate ourselves and when we celebrate each other where you say, yeah, there's, there's a lot of work still to be done. And, and yeah, there's some, some hurts and some wounds along the way. But we're not going to move into the next season mourning the time that was lost, the decades that were wasted, the, the recovery and the progress that we still have to make. Yeah, there may be a long way to go, but I'm not going to wait till I cross the finish line to celebrate. I'm going to celebrate along the way. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says it like this. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith with, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives also in you. 
Paul says, I remember you in my prayers. I long to see you. I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Prayer, words of affirmation, encouragement. Before anything else, before correction, before instructions, before anything, Paul pauses and takes a moment to celebrate and speak life into Timothy. The second thing I've noticed about people who regularly cross finish lines is they develop a fierce resolve. One of the things that Jim Collins talks about in his book, Good to Great, and and in some of his other books, is that people who make it have a fierce resolve, and they're less likely to be easily discouraged. A few weeks ago, I met with a guy named Elliot, who's one of the founders of PushPay, which is a local, fairly young, and extremely successful company that works with churches and processing their giving. And, and we were talking about the start of their company and, and, and how, difficulty, uh, how difficult startups and, and church plants can be. And, and Elliot said something that stuck with me. He said, there's something about leaders who've had their teeth kicked in. Now, not literally. That would be painful and, and awkward. But, but there's something about when somebody's kind of gone through the ringer and experienced things where they can develop this grit and this determination. Uh, Thomas Rawls. Uh, as a running back for the Seattle Seahawks. He was signed by the Seahawks as an un, uh, undrafted free agent in 2015. He played college football at Michigan. And because he was undrafted, he, he kind of came into the season with a chip on his shoulder. He wanted to prove that he belonged in the NFL. And some would say that he's earned his spot, even with the recent injury. You see, there's something about not getting picked that just, it makes you either want to give up or just get this determination that I'm just going to show everyone and I'm going to dig in. Paul goes on to say this in verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, now there's a, a leadership principle here where people with, with more grit are more successful. But I think there's a spiritual grit that we can develop as well that says, you know what, I don't need to have all the answers in order for me to continue moving forward. I'm not going to obsess over the will of God that I don't know. I'm just going to act on the will of God that I do know. I'm going to uh, believe God that he can and trust God that he will, but I'm going to trust him even when he doesn't. I'm going to keep going. Well, how do we do this? Part of it's by number three, staying focused on what matters most. Paul says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That is why I am where I am. I know I have been convinced. What's Paul saying? I've identified what matters most, and I'm relentlessly pursuing that. The other things, important, maybe, necessary sometimes, but they're not what matters most, and so they're not going to take center stage in my life. What's the driving force behind your life? Without getting too introspective, have you paused recently and defined what matters most? And more importantly, is it center stage? If someone took an audit of your energy and they 
they discerned from, simply from that what your priorities were, what would it look like? I know for, for me, it's really easy for me to define what matters most, my, my faith, my family, things like that. But to let that define the way I live, it's a whole nother story. For me, I've noticed that often I can spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on things that, that don't really matter the most. I was, I was looking up some world records this last week, and I came across a few that you may not be familiar with. Uh, Jackie Bibby holds the world record for the most live rattlesnakes held in his mouth. Uh, Michelle Latoto holds the record for the largest airplane ever eaten. I think it might also be the only airplane ever eaten as well. Uh, Nick Vermelin, world record for the largest collection of barf bags. 5,568 airline sick bags. And then Kirby Roy holds the record for receiving the strongest kick to the groin. We'll just leave that one right where it is. Now, now I don't want to downplay the significance of their accomplishments or their uh, contribution to our society, uh, but really, is that real? Now, now, hobbies are great and, and, and activities are great and, and things are great, but but perhaps the greatest risk in life is not trying and failing at things that matter, but it's succeeding at things that really don't. And then number four, pay attention to the small things. Pay attention to the small things. Paul goes on in verse six, six, uh, 13 to say, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Take, take all the things that you've heard from me and let them be a pattern for you and then create a trajectory out of that and then guard it. And how do we do that? With the power of the Holy Spirit. Guard what you have. Often what I've found is what we need to guard against most is not big things that would try to derail us, but it's little things that we don't even notice. It's the small things that, that don't even seem like a big deal, that we underestimate. It's the little things that destroy a marriage. It's the little things that erode our confidence. Often we can recover from one big mistake, but it's when that mistake becomes a series of small things that gets us off track. Small things like comparison. The cookies that you made your kids were fine until you went on Pinterest. And now your kids' cookies don't have Elsa braids, and so they're going into therapy. It's small things like, like feeling alone, where even in the midst of a crowd, you can feel like you're by yourself and you're unnoticed and you're forgotten. And could it be that God really has surrounded you by people who love you, but you don't notice because you haven't looked up lately? Small things like worry, where all you can feel, all you can hear, all you can see is the echoes of what went wrong in the preplay of what might, and it keeps you up at night and fills you with anxiety. Uh, recently, I received, uh, a while back, I received some criticism that really bothered me. And uh, I felt like it was unfair, and, and, and it was just kind of one of those things where, where it just kind of bothers you, and it sticks with you throughout the day, and, and, and your mind just kind of goes to places, and you begin to replay conversations and interactions, and I was getting real worked up and frustrated, and finally I just stopped, and I said, okay, let me just have an honest conversation with myself. Is there any truth 
in what they said. Maybe what bothers me the most is that part of me agrees with them. And, and, and what I've found is that uh, often what bothers us the most is that it bothers us at all. And usually that can be a sign that maybe we need to take a second look and say, okay, is there any truth in this? Is there some, some little things that I can, that I can learn? And, and so I just paused and I said, okay, yeah, they're a jerk. And yeah, the next time I see them, I'm going to have an overwhelming desire to throat punch them. But what's the truth in this? And how can I move forward with it? Song of Solomon, it's not in your notes, but it is in the Bible. It says this in chapter 2, verse 15. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. What are the little foxes that ruin your life? What are the little foxes that ruin your day, that sabotage your relationships, that erode at your confidence? Beware of decisions that divide and conquer. Beware of attractive half-truths. Beware of self-seeking shortcuts. Pay attention to the small things. And then finally, number five, remember help will find you. Help will find you. Paul concludes this section of thought in verse 15 by writing, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. May the Lord show mercy to the house of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains even though his parents gave him a horrible name. No, it doesn't say that. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. Paul tells Timothy of a, a personal story. Yes, maybe in part so that, that Timothy would know and be able to thank Onesiphorus. But, but maybe part of what Paul was doing was giving Timothy a case study so that the next time that, that Timothy found himself feeling alone, feeling abandoned, feeling discouraged, feeling like he doesn't see the path ahead, that he would remember and have hope. Uh, in a few weeks, I'm taking my wife uh, Haley and my son Henley to Disneyland. Now, I don't like waiting for anything, which, which uh, is funny because I like Disneyland. And, and Disneyland is all about it, pay, paying exuberant amounts of money to be in crowded places to wait in long lines. And for some reason, I absolutely love it. Now, now, to Disney's credit, they've done some work uh, to try to make waiting as tolerable as possible. Like, like they have the Fast Pass. Are you familiar with the Fast Pass? The Fast Pass basically says that, that you're here and you've been waiting and you've fought through the line to get here, but here's a pass and it tells you how long you have to wait before you come back. And it's like, well, I'm already here. Yeah, but this is going to be faster. Okay, go do some other things and then come back. And so in essence, what the fast pass is, is it tells you how long you have to wait until you can come back and then wait a little longer, right? And so you're, you're waiting and, and finally you, you get back and it's your time and, and you get in this line. And, and then they have those signs, right? That, that, that tell you kind of what your progress is. It says your wait from this point on is, is, is two days or, or however long it seems. And, and, and they do that because often when you're sitting, it doesn't seem like it's moving, does it? It doesn't seem like you're making any progress. And when it doesn't feel like we're moving, we can get frustrated, we can get angry, and we can get discouraged, and we can want to just, just leave. And so it, it says, from this point forward, your wait is X amount of time. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if they had that for other areas of our lives as well? 
Like you've been, you've been working on this, getting this business uh, idea up and running and, and, and you feel like you've been waiting forever and you're getting frustrated and it's not going anywhere. And if you just had this sign that said, your wait from this point forward is nine months. Okay, nine months, that's a long time, but, but, but nine months, as long as I know it's gonna happen, as long as I know the line is moving, then I can, I can be okay. Or, or maybe you've been waiting to get married. And it feels like it's, it's just been this long wait. There's no hope. If there's just this sign that says your wait from this point is, is a year and a half. Okay, as, as long as I know the line is moving, I'll be okay. Or you'd say, I've been waiting for my husband to, 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 to put the toilet seat down just one time without being asked. How long, how many years do I have to wait before that'll happen in my marriage? And if there's just a sign that said, your wait from this point will be the rest of your natural life. That's how long you're gonna have to wait. But, but that's not the line we find ourselves in, is it? There's, there's, there's no wait time. And some of us in, in this last season of life, it seems like all we've been doing is waiting. And we've been getting discouraged and the, the finish line has begun to blur. And we've started to believe the lie that would said there's no end in sight and you're by yourself and you're on your own. And you've been waiting for God to show up and you feel like he hasn't. You've been waiting for God to cure the sickness. You've been waiting for God to fix the finances. You've been waiting for God to help you get over this addiction and, and find some victory in that area of your life. You've been waiting for God to bring justice to that person who wronged you. And you feel like, where is my help? Where is the future? What can I do? And somewhere along the line, you lost hope. And, and, and my prayer is that this weekend, that you would know that 2,000 years ago, God sent help in the form of a baby named Jesus so that you would know that you don't have to face this on your own, that you don't have to do it by yourself, that there is hope, that it may not happen in your timeline, it may not happen the way you want or expect, but help will find you. The only question is, where will that help come from? Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, and I'll close with this. It says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Some of you today, you just need to have an honest conversation with God where, where you simply ask for help. God, my teenager is a ticking time bomb and they just explode at me and they're disrespectful and rude and I don't know what to do. God, help me. God, there's my marriage, my spouse, I don't think they love me anymore and they're cold towards me and they're distant and critical of everything. God, help me. There's a conversation that I have to have this week and I'm anxious about it and it, it could go the wrong way and, and it's gonna be awkward and I don't know how to do it, but I have to do it. God, help me. For me, it's one of my kids, it's my son or it's my daughter and they're struggling with something. And it's one thing when we're struggling, but when we see our kids and they're struggling with something, it, it, it's, it's a whole nother matter and, and I don't know how to help them. God, help me. I don't know what finish line you're trying to cross 
this weekend, but I do know that there is a God in heaven that scripture says is our ever present help in time of need. And he would love to help you. He would love to be invited into the middle of whatever you're facing. Will you pray with me?